Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks that whether we're worshipping in here, whether all the technology goes smoothly, whether we're worshipping in Sunday school, whatever, you are here with us all the time. And we pray, Lord God, that you might bless this time that we have together. Bless this time as we gather around your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the past few weeks, we have been plodding our way through a single chapter of the Bible, Hebrews 11. And it offers us a broad sweep through the story of the Old Testament, meeting characters who maybe would just be described as heroes of the faith. Some of them are well-known, some of them less so. Some of them, in fairness, you wouldn't necessarily want as role models for how we live today. But together they play a part in the unfolding story of God and his relationship with us and his plans to save the world. But the chapter doesn't just crop up in a vacuum or without context. The writer of Hebrews has a purpose in mind. They're writing to a bunch of early followers of Jesus who are finding the life of faith tough. Many of them are tempted to give up. Some of them already have. And I suppose a key purpose of this chapter is to remind these followers and us that their experience wasn't new or even unusual. If anything, it should be the expected norm. It's always been that way. And here's a whole load of examples. God never promised the life of faith would be easy, just that it would be worth it. And today... If you're somebody who likes to make lots of progress through things, you're going to be really disappointed because we're focusing our attention on a single verse and a single character. Hebrews 11, verse 7. And this is what we read. By faith Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the, the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So if last week we had one of the lesser-known characters on the list, Enoch, this week we come to one of the more famous, Noah. I mean, even outside church circles, many people will have heard of Noah and the ark. He's one of those characters that's passed into sort of wider public awareness. A few years back, his story was turned into a Hollywood blockbuster starring Russell Crowe and Emma Watson. A few years before that, his story was retold in the comedy Evan Almighty, setting it in the present day with God asking a congressman to build an ark to protect the community from a flood resulting from a badly constructed dam. On one of my recent birthdays, somebody sent me a cartoon, a card with a cartoon on it. And in the cartoon, there were two dinosaurs caught in the rain. And they see this boat going past. And one of them turns to the other and goes, oh no, was that today? (laughs) Or 
last week, my brother's, it was my brother's birthday, and I sent him a card which featured an old punch cartoon of two lions standing alone on, uh, on the deck of an ark. And one of them's turned to the other and says, you know what? I'm still hungry. <laughs> you know, when I was a child, there was, even, there was a children's TV series called Noah and Nellie. And he lived with animals on board the Skylark. You know, he'd say, all aboard the Skylark. And even now, it's not that uncommon to see children's toys with Noah's Ark in it. Even, not just in Christian shops, but even just in mainstream children's toy shops. Although, how child-friendly it really is to have a story in which everybody basically dies is, that, is open to the bit. But perhaps it is a story for our age. Last year, at the height of the COVID pandemic, the hope the NHS brought to us was symbolized with a rainbow. An idea that can be cast right back to the Noah story. Or maybe as we worship today, and uh, knowing full well that the COP26 summit's going on, a story of a man faced with impending catastrophe, taking steps to secure the future of life on our planet. Maybe it is more appropriate. Maybe we could cast Greta Thunberg as a modern-day Noah-type figure, calling us to change our ways or face calamity. And maybe the possibility of the difference that one person can make to change the future is quite relevant for this time too. But let's be honest. The story of Noah is not an easy read. It's a story of salvation, but it is a story of huge judgment and death. The idea of a world getting so bad that God would be grieved and regret putting us on the earth can make hard reading. Maybe we really do have to stretch our imaginations to imagine a world so wicked. Maybe it is hard to imagine a world where violence is the preferred solution to most problems. Or a world where racism and prejudice are allowed to run rampant. Or a world where some people would enslave other human beings. Or a world where people are basically valued on their ability to produce. And some are expendable, others are valuable. Or a world where children are used for the sexual pleasure of adults. Or one where the greed and interests of a small group stand in the way of hope and progress for millions. Maybe it is difficult to imagine such a world. Or maybe we just have to switch on the news. 
Have you ever truly regretted something you've done and you've wondered how you're ever going to get over this? Well, imagine how it must have felt to be God, to have invested his image in a people, to have given them immense power and responsibility, but also free will, and see it used for such destructive ends. Well, whether we recognize that or not, that's the backdrop to the story of Noah. We find a story in the early chapters of Genesis. Genesis 6 begins with a story of a world descending into chaos. The whole earth, it's, we're told, has corrupted its ways. Rather than joining God in his ongoing work of creation, humanity seems hell-bent on destruction. Violence, the very opposite of creativity, fills the earth. And I use the word chaos in there very deliberately because chaos was precisely what creation had emerged from. And the Noah story actually contains a number of parables with the opening chapter of Genesis and the story of creation. Not least the image of the animals and the birds according to their kinds. The animals, according to their kinds. The creeping things, according to their kinds. Making their way to Noah. But also in the beginning, the earth was formless, empty, and chaotic. And the spirit hovered over the waters, which in the ancient world was a symbol of chaos. And in the creation story, we see God rain back those forces, gathering together the waters so that dry land can emerge. And the implication is that on land at least, life will continue so long as God holds those forces at bay. And yet the darkness and the chaos are being ushered back in. They're being welcomed into a world consumed by violence. In the end, God gives the world over to what it's chosen. The waters restrained at creation break free. And a world that was so welcoming of the darkness and chaos find itself consumed by them. But at the same time, there's another story going on. Just when it looks like we're reaching the end of the road, we find a moment of hope. God hadn't given up on us. In the midst of all this despair, there's a story of faith. This isn't just the story of a flood. It's the story of a man, Noah. It's not just a story of massive destruction. Through that one man and his family, it becomes a story of rescue and redemption. It's a story that reminds us, however messed up things are, with God, a new future is still possible. Now, sure, if you believe in a God, you could probably believe that such a God could save the world and rescue us all, and he does. But how does he do it? Through one person who chose a different path, who chose the right path, 
And because of him, what could have been the end opened up to a whole new possibility. And it all turns on a couple of verses in Genesis 6. But Noah found favor with God. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. And Noah walked with God. Whilst the rest of the world seemed to be heading towards destruction, Noah was walking a different path. Whilst the rest of the world was winding up the story, Noah was writing a new chapter. Whilst it seemed utterly hopeless story of death and destruction, because of Noah, a story of new creation was being written. But you know, Noah is something of a surprising savior. He wasn't an obvious choice. He may have been blameless amongst the people of his time, but tradition thought says that everyone else thought he was mad. He spent forever warning people about a coming flood, but nobody believed him. They mocked the mad guy with his warnings of coming disaster and his weird boat. And that would even appear to include some of his own family. Last week, we saw Enoch had a son called Methuselah. Methuselah is perhaps best known as the oldest man in the Bible, which suggests he lived for 969 years. Now, there's a man who got the most out of his pension. But, he's the grand, but Methuselah is the grandfather of Noah. Okay? But although it's, he was related to Noah, it seems that Noah couldn't even persuade him. And I'll tell you why I say this. Because I did a bit of maths. You can take the boy out of the world of stats, but you can't take the world of stats out of the boy. When Methuselah was 187, he became the father of Lamech. When Lamech was 182, he became the father of Noah. This makes Methuselah 369 years old when Noah's born. And his total years are 969, so the math isn't that difficult. We can work out that Noah is 600 when Methuselah dies. And what age is Noah when the floods come? 600. Was Methuselah one of those taken out by the flood? Could Noah not even persuade some of his own family to join him? It says he was blameless in his time, but he was far from popular. Hebrews says he condemned the world, but what does that mean? It doesn't mean he was self-righteous or fault-finding or judgmental or went around tutting and saying, I told you so. No, Noah was just different. His life stood out from those around him. 
And because of that, people didn't want him around. His way of living posed a challenge to those around him because he lived by a different standard. He refused to be dictated to by the standards of people around him. He was considered extremist, overly idealistic, not quite in the real world. You know, community can be a powerful thing. We can achieve far more together than we ever are, can apart. But community has its downsides too. Do you know you are less likely to do something heroic when you see yourself as part of a group? Have you ever heard the old story of everybody, somebody, nobody, and anybody? Something had to be done and everybody was sure that somebody would do it. Anybody could have done it, but nobody did it. Somebody got angry about that because it was everybody's job. But everybody thought that anybody could do it. But nobody realized that everybody wouldn't do it. And it ended up with everybody blaming somebody when nobody did what anybody could have done. When we see ourselves primarily as just part of a group, it can be so easy to think, somebody really ought to do something about this. How often are we the somebody? On the other hand, groupthink can drag us down. People do far worse things when they see themselves as part of a group than they ever would if they were entirely by themselves. Mob mentality can take over. And the life of faith can be lonely. It can mean standing for the right thing even when nobody else will. Saying, this is where I stand. Even if, even if it's lonely, even if others think I'm mad. And you know, our world depends on people like that. Pretty much every piece of social progress, stuff that we take for granted, it doesn't come easily. It's hard won. And it starts with one person, one group, who are going to say no to what everyone else considers normal. And often those people are mocked, disparaged, ridiculed, slandered. But they still say no. And the only reason the world ever moves on is because they did. Noah was one of those people. And because of his no, God could rescue his creation. Noah was the first character in the list of Hebrews who can actually to whom we can readily identify an action that faith drove him to. Noah believed in a promise, even when it seemed foolish to everyone around him. Yeah, disaster was coming, but no one could really see it. Nobody was listening. It wasn't obvious. But Noah was ready to obey, and his faith prompted him to take action, to build an ark to protect his family from a storm that nobody else believed was coming. That was the proof of his faith. 
You know, sometimes today, faith is presented in such a way as you're almost telling God what to do. If you had more faith, you'd be healed. If you had more faith, you'd get that job. If you had more faith, you'd solve that problem. If you had more faith, you'd be better looking. But from Noah, we see a different angle. There's one phrase which crops up in a story twice, which is very telling. Noah did everything that God commanded him. Noah did everything that God commanded him. Even when it seemed like madness, even when everybody mocked him, Noah staked what he had on God's promise and warning. As we saw last week, he didn't just believe in God. He, he believed that God rewarded those who sought him. He believed that God had plans for him and could be trusted with what he committed to him. Faith isn't about telling what God what to do. It's about trusting in what God wants to do. And it didn't come to Noah as a one-off. Do you know the only reason Noah was able to rise to the big occasion was because he was walking with God in the everyday. I remember attending a football match. One of the worst matches I've ever seen. One of the worst matches probably in the history of matches, really. 1999, Doncaster Rovers versus Stevenage Borough in the Nationwide Conference League. You could tell it was going to be a cracker right from the off, couldn't you? It finished nil-nil. And can I just say this? A score of nil flattered both sides. And as another pass went astray and the crowd started shouting abuse at the players, the guy whom I was feeling very guilty for having dragged along to this turned to me and said very sarcastically, of course, Andrew, what you know is everyone in here would have played that pass better than he did. The truth is, you can find yourself thinking, I could do better than that. I could take that penalty. I could make that putt. I'd do a better job as PM. I know I've said that one. But you know, chances are you couldn't. You could give me Rory McIlroy's clubs, his caddy, his money, and I guarantee you, faced with a putt to win the Open, I'd miss it. Because you know, those things aren't a matter of a moment. They're the product of a lifetime spent preparing for it. You see, we might think that when the crunch moment comes, we will be the person we wanted to be the person we were meant to be, the person we know God called us to be. But it's not a given. We're very unlikely to do the right thing in the big moment if we're doing the wrong thing in the everyday. Noah was a person God needed him to be when the big moment came because he lived a life of what Eugene Peterson called long obedience 
in the one direction. Long obedience in the one direction. Even when everyone thought he was mad. Even when no one listened. Even as everyone around them seemed hell-bent on destruction. Noah walked with God. Noah chose a different path. The right path. Noah chose to be the person God called him to be. And even in the midst of the greatest of masses, because of the obedience of one man, God was able to begin a whole new story. I doubt we'll ever be asked to build a boat to save humanity. Trust me, if I build it, don't get on it. But each of us in our own way is called to be God's instrument in ushering in a different future, in a world of so much despair to offer a glimmer of hope, in a world of so much destruction to be bearers of a God of rescue and redemption who is writing a different story, who is building a different kingdom. And a God who writes that story through people who will allow a new story to be written. All too often we'll find ourselves asking, well, who am I to do that? What, what, what can I do? If you ever ask those questions, congratulations, you've met the perfect qualifications because virtually everyone you will hear about over the next few weeks as we work through Hebrews 11 thought the same. That too is the norm of faith. The world has always turned on surprising saviors. It's always started with one person who would say no to what everyone else thought was normal. The one person who would listen to that voice guiding them towards something new that God wanted to bring about. And it needn't be anything huge. It always starts small with a simple act of obedience and trust. But a long obedience in a single direction, in small things, means that when we're needed, we're already the people we, we're need, we need to be because it's who we've been becoming all along. Noah, in a world so of so much despair, reminds us that there is always the possibility of a new story being written, for God hasn't given up on us. And in that, he is the model of the one whom we remember at this table. Because through Jesus, we discover that even when we were far from God, God hadn't given up on us. Jesus was one who lived a life of long obedience in the same direction. He too was mocked and derided by those who thought they knew better. He was misunderstood by those closest to him. Even his own family at times thought he was out of his mind. And like Noah, Jesus found obedience left him alone. Ultimately rejected, he went to a cross. And that too looked like the end. But because of his no, one man was writing a new chapter. 
Through his broken body and shed blood, he became the one who wrote a different story, who took us to a different future, with a God who hadn't given up on us, who won't give up on us. And with him, even in the midst of the mess, a new beginning is possible for those who will trust in him. Grace and peace be with you.